Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Rose Cavari from Houston Methodist talking about urological care for adult spina bifida. So we have um, 20 people already logged in. Dr. Wiener um, gave the lecture on pediatric care for uh, spina bifida patients, um, uh, the urological care in pediatric spina bifida patient population. And um, these questions that we are having right now are adult and PD. Um, so some of them are just in general for neurogenic bladder care. And um, most of them have been addressed either in his talk or my talk. Um, so, um, Michelle, could you release the, the poll, like make it live so we can see? Um, yeah, I think as long as like few patients respond, few uh, participants respond, we can go ahead and discuss it. So, I don't think I have access to releasing it. Okay, there we go. All right, so the first question is uh, addressing neurogenic bladder. Um, what is the first option treatment? This was discussed in Dr. Wiener's talk um, uh, and the uh, uh, Lapidus papers were mentioned in the 1970s and I think it's important for everybody to know. CIC and anticholinergic antimuscarinics are the primary um, management that we want to think about in these patients. So we can move on to the second question. So we'll just give a few seconds and then we can show the responses. So the possible predictor of poor clinical response to intravesical injection of onobotulinum and poxin injection is pre-existing. So what did people? Okay. So this was mentioned in um, Dr. Wiener's talk, and I'm gonna go into a little bit more detail in it, especially for adults. Patient, if you think about it, patients with spina bifida have had remodeling of their bladder. In, the remodeling sort of started in utero, although most of them may not have changes at birth, but this remodeling of the nerves and the musculature kind of started in utero, and so as they go through life, um, they get more fibrosis and scarring in their bladder. So the Botox theoretically is supposed to work on the muscle and the terminal nerve endings, afferent and efferent nerves. Um, so if you have more fibrosis, then it's not going to work. So patients with poor detrusor compliance actually are the ones that don't respond as well to Botox, especially in adults. And this is really why some people think the proactive approach is may help prevent those changes in the bladder wall. We don't know that, but that's the theory. So let's go ahead and release the responses, uh, Michelle. 
So this is something I'll cover a little bit more in detail in my talk. The presentation of bladder malignancy in those with a history of bladder augmentation does not include, I'm gonna actually even modify and add to the question, with or without bladder augmentation, in patients with neurogenic bladder patient, they usually present at a much more advanced disease, so A is correct. They present at a much younger age, so B is incorrect. This is the answer, that's the correct answer to this question. Um, and they do present with atypical symptoms, such as pain, bleeding, recurrent UTIs. Um, and if they've had an augment, usually that malignancy is about 10 years uh, or 15 years after their, their augmentation. Um, and they do have this atypical uh, signs, which I will cover in my talk. So I think we'll hold on to the poll questions and I can go ahead and get my lecture started. Um, so for those of you guys who just are joining for this lecture, good afternoon. I'm Rose Kabari, I'm a urologist um, at Houston Methodist. Let me share my screen. And um, we have created a combined pediatric and adult spina bifida urological care. Dr. Wiener presented his lecture an hour early. I highly, highly recommend you guys watch both of these videos combined if uh, you missed the first one, because I think there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of things that he covered that I will just kind of uh, go over or mention and pass, and he has excellent uh, tables uh, comparing different recommendations and guidelines that can help us care for these patients. So I'll focus more on the adult side of uh, things. So these are my disclosures. I really don't have any conflict of interest for this talk. I am supported by NIH and my institution um, for research. Something I want to I emphasize to my fellows and residents is that when you think about neurogenic bladder, yes, there's a lot of guidelines, especially from the European side, that has overlap and it just puts everybody in one blanket, neurogenic bladder. Uh, but there are some differences between these groups. There are differences between MS patients and the whole acquired neurogenic bladder versus the congenital, the patients with myelomeninocytes, as we just discussed about the Botox and the, the remodeling that they've had in their bladder. So there's just some inherent differences that we do need to keep in mind um, uh, because of their bladder changes, their, their body habitus, they have more scoliosis, trunkal obesity. Um, and by the time they get to us, the adult urologists have already had many abdominal surgeries, shunt revisions, augmentations. So, so they are different than just the, uh, the, the broad uh, neurogenic bladder. So keep that in mind. But the basics of neurogenic bladder management is still the same in all uh, patients. Um, Dr. Wiener mentioned um, and gave us some examples of people who are uh, adults right now with spina bifida and are leading really great lives. They're married, they have families, they have children, they're working, they're employed. Um, and, um, and I can tell you, I have friends who are surgeons who, are, who have um, uh, uh, history of spina bifida. There, there's a chairperson of neurosurgery department at the University of uh, Michigan who has uh, spina bifida. So we have many adults with spina bifida, and that's why we do need to be aware of how to provide care for this patient population. And who is the best person to, to offer care? Um, we see um, at many institutions across the nation that patients with spina bifida stay in the pediatric hospitals because
because they're comfortable with the setting that their surgeons have taken care of them beautifully over the years and it's hard for them to transition but eventually they have to transition to the adult institution um, and that's where we need to find um, urologists who are first of all willing to take care of these patients Tim Boone who's my mentor and my chair always says it's a labor of love by all means it's a labor of love it's it takes a lot of effort and time and it's really hard if you're just one faculty by yourself caring for these patients you do need a team you do need a few other um, caring urologists who are willing to take care of these patients and have some understanding of the pediatric uh, side of things and how they can incorporate some of the pediatric skill sets and trainings in their adult uh, uh, care and then also be aware of their reconstructive surgery and the neurological care we know in adult and ideally this needs to be done in an adult setting at the end of the day when they do transition there's a lot to discuss um, for adult SB in a urology office. There is uh, a few that I will um, go over. This is like everything that we can discuss, but there's a few that I'm going to go over in more detail, such as augment, just because most of these patients, by the time they get to us, they have augments. I think you guys need to know about that a little bit more in detail. Stones, the big deal. We'll talk about that sexuality and fertility is another big adult issue. So I'll go over in a few of these um, concerns. Besides resources, Dr. Wiener kind of went into detail, and I agree there's really uh, only the Spina Bifida Association guidelines is what we have recently, which uh, is available on the website. It's a very, very easy document to read from the urology standpoint um, side, so I highly recommend you guys take a look at that. And then the European uh, Association um, has guidelines on neurogenic bladder as well. So those are the ones that I use throughout for my uh, throughout my talk, and most of them are just consensus opinion. Honestly, they're, they're low level evidence. There's a lot of things that I may say in my talk that are my personal opinion. So I've put a red PO on there, so they're not from guidelines; they're just personal opinion. So uh, you guys would know that from renal function. The the recommendation again: most patients who are born have normal renal function, um, and as they go through life, they may have decline, and that's what we want to prevent. Um, um, uh, and the discussion of what tool to use. We have limited uh, creatinine. It's not a good screening tool, but it is most commonly used. We use it most commonly as well because it's just easy to use. But cystatin C or um, nuclear medicine, um, a GFR assessment is more accurate. Um, and the recommendation is for adults to do it yearly, um, the, the serum creatinine and the bladder ultrasound. Um, uh, and uh, that is what we do as well. Have a lower urine tract uh, monitoring, and that means cystoscopy or urodynamics. I think this is where we don't really have good data or guidance from the guidelines. Um, the, the guidelines really don't mention the frequency of um, these monitoring. Um, the cystoscopy is not recommended to be done routinely, only if you have symptoms, such as in patients with augments who have change in their urinary um, status, they have hematuria, infections, incontinence, pain, or their transplantations for the presence of BPA uh, virus. Um, from the urodynamics, again, there's no consensus on the frequency of the recommendation. The recommendation is that do a urodynamics at baseline, which I do as well. I do recommend a video urodynamics uh, at baseline. And in my mind, that sort of, sort of sets the tune. If, They've been doing fine, and they're adults. There's the, this is a stable bladder, not hostile bladder. Um, I may not repeat it as frequently as they were used to in their spina bifida clinic, 
I may set a plan that I'm going to do ultrasound and creatinine, and if clinically they're doing fine, plan to repeat it in three to five years instead of doing it uh, more frequent than that. So, um, so this is where we stand um, for these two uh, evaluations. And this is something else that I usually uh, try to make a point of for my residents and fellows or when I give talk about neurogenic bladder is to highlight the need for fluoroscopy. If you are in private practice or if you join a private practice or you're in an institution that doesn't have fluoroscopy um, capability, consider doing a VCUG afterwards because it's so important to get that um, imaging combined with your uh, urodynamic assessment in neurogenic bladder patients. On the first glance, when you look at this urodynamic, this is the physical pressure, abdominal pressure, and diffuser pressure. Doesn't look too bad, right? Um, and then if you really look at the imaging combined with this, first of all, you see this is a sacral um, agenesis patient and um, some spina bifida here. There's a very trivicalated remodeled bladder, high-grade reflexes, right kidney. And then, oh, where's the left one? Um, uh, is cross-fuse ectopia. So, there's a lot more information that you can get, and when you scope the patient, that confirms extremely remodeled bladder, these white ULOs, and retrograde confirms that um, And that's why you want to add the fluoroscopy, because again, you would do a urodynamics, and maybe the, the pressures would look good to you, and the capacity looks good to you, but then when you get the imaging, you see half of the capacity, or two-thirds of the capacity is in the kidneys. Um, this patient does not have a normal systematic capacity because as soon as you do something with these ureters, you're cutting the capacity of this patient to one-fourth, one-fifth. So it's important to get the fluoroscopy imaging in adults when you do evaluation. So one of the issues that we need to discuss in adults with spina bifida is bacteria in neurogenic bladder patients, neurogenic bladder patients, extremely common especially if they catheterize, it's even more common. So we are learning more and more that chronic asymptomatic bacteria does not impact renal function. So the recommendation is do not routinely screen and do not treat asymptomatic chronic bacteria in neurogenic bladder patients, which that would include the spina bifida patients as well. Um, Dr. Wiener mentioned some of the, um, went into more detail about the definitions of UTIs in adults. We really don't have any consensus that we all can come into one agreement of what is that definition of UTI, but what I can tell you from the experience of dealing with adults with uh, orogenic bladder patients, spina bifida, looks like odor and color is what they use as their definite diagnosis. If the odor and color changes, then they have a UTI. But there's really none of these guidelines or studies, odor and color is uh, used as a, as a criteria. When patients call in with that, Problem, I usually just sell them for 24 hours, double your fluid. If it doesn't go away, then we'll look into it and see if it's a UTI or not. Uh, because the change in odor and color is a sign of dehydration and not necessarily infection, in my mind. But when they do have symptomatic UTIs in neurogenic bladder patient and spina bifida patient, then it is considered a complicated UTI. Then it is considered something that you, you would want to treat with a five to seven day course of um, a culture-specific antibody, you may need to extend it to 14 days if they have other uh, comorbidities or the factors that you worry about, pyelonephritis, so keep that in mind. Um, in my practice, for patients who I see once, or, uh, once a year or once every two years, if they're doing well, I do 
get a urine sample when they see me, but I document all over the chart that if the culprit comes back positive, we are not treating this patient is not symptomatic. It's only for reference. If when they call six months later with symptomatic UTI, then I know what to treat them with. Um, so I do get a reference. Recurrent UTI. This is something that um, I think it, it's worth evaluating in detail when patients present to you with recurrent UTI neurogenic bladder patients. Um, this is not just your postmenopausal women who've had 20 years history of recurrent UTIs. I think if you cannot get control over the UTI management, then there, there's probably something else going on. Maybe there is a pressure, storage pressure, voiding pressure issue. There's incomplete bladder emptying. There's stones, the bladder, kidneys. So I think this needs to be investigated in more detail. And then maybe in order to get control over the UTIs, actually you have to control the pressures in the bladder. You have to uh, consider adding Botox or uh, adjusting the, uh, the medications or um, you know, uh, maybe you do need to think about the catheterization, what kind of catheter, so other things could be um, uh, contributing to this um, recurrent UTI neurogenic bladder patients. So this is from the neurogenic bladder research group, Sean Elliott, that did a very nice systematic review on prevention of UTIs in adult spina bifida. Let's say you did everything and you really didn't find any anatomical or functional issues. Um, and you want to prevent it. There's really no recommendation for routine use of cranberry or ascorbic acid, or metanamine, or any other supplements. There's really, uh, as far as using single use or hydrophilics or, or sterile, there's really no better catheter or better um, uh, single use versus multiple use um, of catheters um, uh, for these patients to prevent UTIs. Um, I do like the hydrophilic in my patients because a lot of patients who chronically catheterize, especially the ones that they use their, uh, their stomas, they give up using lubrication. It's just difficult for them to open it and have a bunch of stuff with them. So I like hydrophilic because I think it helps with traumatizing um, and also it can help it with UTIs uh, for that reason, just respect that they don't use lubrication anymore after years. Um, there's, uh, so there's really no evidence-based medicine to put patients on any of these treatments just to prevent UTI. Now, if somebody does have, uh, has been on, let's say, cranberry supplement and thinks that it does help and it works, then by all means, we can consider continuing it. The only thing that there is a little bit of data behind it in, in um, neurogenic bladder is um, the, the gentamicin installation. There's some good studies, um, I've listed them here, you guys can look at it in detail. One of them specifically neurogenic bladder patients that have some supportive data of using uh, 80 milligram of gentamicin. Um, this is the, the uh, protocol that I use. Um, uh, we make the gentamicin bag or bottle for them. Uh, we get a whole bottle of one liter saline. We add six vials of gents to it. Patient can store it for a whole month in their fridge. And, um, and then they can use it um, uh, at the beginning more frequently during the week than maybe twice a week. And I usually tell them to get a little cup and a clean syringe so they can wash this and they can wash this and then pour it here and then instill in the bladder after they have already drained their bladder um, and let it sit for a few hours and then drain it. So there is some evidence behind this um, and we have used it in our patients with neurogenic bladder. Again, you mindfully have augments that you want you're going to use this. This may not be an ideal situation. So um, Dr. Wiener mentioned 10% 10, 10 of adults void by void spontaneously. Uh, and in that cohort, this is from the CDC registry data. 
And in that cohort, only less than 1% of it per day. Um, I rarely see patients and adults who have uh, who avoid spontaneously unless they're really, really low sacral uh, patients, lesions. However, there are people that do transition to my clinic and there are quote unquote spontaneously voiding. Um, I do have to say, be mindful if somebody says, oh, I've never needed to catheterize and I just wait. I think those are patients that you really need to evaluate them carefully early on and monitor them long term because um, a lot of times they, this is what we get is this is a gentleman who had voided with, spontaneously voided, but basically Valsalva voided for years. He came to me for infertility um, and, and this is the, just a regular key. You can see, see all these um, stones in the prostate. Basically, when you scope this patient, and this is just a cystogram, you can see all this whole prostate seminal vesicle gets filled up with contrast. So when you scope him, he has like a Swiss cheese prostate full of stones and pus pockets. And it just looks horrible. And now that I put him on, um, he has like a lot of painful ejaculation with this colonized prostate. And now that I want to start him on, um, catheterization because he needs to catheter it's an empty well it's hard for him because every time he catheterizes he pops one of these stones into the bladder it's sort of like a little mess to deal with so uh, being mindful for patients that say quote unquote I don't use catheter I just empty my bladder really see how they avoid because they, they may need to be catheterizing um, so let's switch gears and talk about augmentation cystoplasty because again many adults uh, would have had an augmentation cystoplasty. So when you think about it, there are two different ways to think about it. There are non-lethal complications. These are long-term, late-term uh, complications, which we'll go into a little bit more detail. And then there are these more uh, lethal concerns that we're going to go into um, as well. So uh, the, the image actually is what we use in adults for a lot of our augments. Um, Boone and I usually do the right use the right cecum, like a modified Indiana augment, and we use the ileum terminal ileum paper, like an Indiana, and use it as a channel, catheterizable channel. Uh, we bypass the bladder horizontally because there's less tethering on the mesentery and it reaches better. And there's usually get a leak if you open the bladder uh, uh, vertically, anterior, posteriorly. So we do it transversely, but um, as Dr. Wiener mentioned, a lot of adults that come to my clinic, they have had all sorts of augmentations. They might have had auto-augmentation, where it's basically just removing the detrusor and letting the bladder balloon out like the diverticulum. They might have had stomach augmentation, and majority of ileum uh, as a part of their augment, which I do use uh, as well if they don't need a channel in adults uh, in augmentation. So keep that in mind, it could be any any uh, part of the bowel or ureter. So bacteria, chronic bacteria, again, very common in patients who've had augmentation. Um, the recommendation is the same. If they're asymptomatic, don't screen, don't treat. However, if they do have symptomatic UTIs, which is recurrent, the recommendation is that, honestly, there's no medication you can give orally uh, or do anything for them to help with that, except for irrigation. I believe in irrigation. I believe in rigorous irrigation. Yeah, my nurses take a lot of time with these patients going over irrigation um, uh, pattern and, and, and regimen um, and showing them vigorous irrigation three times um, a week at least. Most of them, when you talk to them, they say, oh yeah, they told me how to irrigate when I first got my augment, but it's been years, I don't need it. You know, I don't make a lot of meters, I don't need it. 
but then when you teach them and they get rid of the UTIs, then that is truly uh, beneficial. Um, many of them don't irrigate because, oh, they ran out of syringes, so they ran out of sterile saline or sterile water. In my practice, I, I tell them just tap water is fine. You don't need any fancy, fancy irrigation material or fluid. Just, just tap water is the mechanical action of removing the debris and the, the mucus that's helpful in my mind. So uh, we encourage this a lot, and there's data to back it up as well. Hematuria, uh, when, the, when patients present with hematuria, you have to think about infection, stone, trauma, and malignancy. And sometimes this very uncommon hematuria dysuria syndrome, which happens with patients who have had gastric augmentation cystoplasty, which was very common many years ago. Uh, uh, it's not as common now. But then you can, um, it's usually transient, it's self-limiting. You can consider using histamine, antihistamines or PPIs or um, check for helicobacter pylori and treat for that. But sometimes when your patient keeps sending you these messages, that these pictures that, oh my God, every morning I wake up, this is what I get, and this is, I can't deal with this anymore. And then you evaluate them, you get a CT with contrast, and you see that, um, first of all, their native bladder is very con contracted, very small, it's really not functional. It's hard to drain this little bottom part of the native bladder. It's usually full of pus and um, debris, and then uh, this is their augment. So uh, this patient chose to have a complete removal of this. He actually, we did find that he had a fistula also of his bowel on, the, uh, on his stoma. So he chose for an ileal conduit. He's five years out and he's doing fine uh, with an ileal conduit. Here's another issue in adults. Always think about when you get patients with Difficulty catheterization, recurrent UTI, something doesn't make sense. It could be stone, it could be a bladder stone or kidney stone. This is a patient who's um, had multiple augments, as you can see. So you can imagine when patient, this patient catheterizes through a channel, there will be pockets of this bladder that's not going to drain. This is a cystogram after we remove the stones. But um, you can see that there are pockets that the mucus and the debris is going to sit, and then um, you're going to get these large stones uh, in this patient population. So, so kind of be mindful about that. I'm going to pause this for a second. This is another patient we had who's um, also spina bifida who came to us with a large uh, adult, um, I think she's 50s, um, with a uh, large bladder stone um, in, the, in the augmented portion of, or in, in the augmented bladder. She also had an artificial urinary sphincter at her bladder neck which she was uh, very, very attached to. The, the AUS wasn't working, wasn't cycling, wasn't functioning. She didn't want us to touch it. She didn't want us to remove it. She didn't want us to do anything with the sphincter. Um, and that was one of the reasons why she hadn't had the stone removed because there was a risk of getting into the sphincter. And then she also has BP shunt. So you can imagine that we have a very small window to open uh, the bladder to get a large stone out. Uh, Cephalot, I didn't want to get into the peritoneum and have all that dirty urine next to the shunt. Um, it, it's a big deal in adults and pediatrics when you get a fever after these surgeries and patients have a shunt and with the externalization, it's just a big, big, um, difficult thing to manage. Um, and then uh, distally, I didn't want to get into the capsule of the bladder neck. So various, and then I wanted to also open in the native bladder part, so I'll have more tissue to close because the augmented part would be very thin and there's more risk for enterocutaneous fistulas and vesicocutaneous fistulas and those sort of things. So a very small window to open and you guys can see how big the stone is and I'll tell you a trick you can use 
So all in the bladder, here's the stone. Um, and then here's the, the, the cup, the balloon for the sphincter. Um, so we um, pause this. This is patients oriented this way. This is the head. This is these are the legs. So sphincter, all the tubing, and the reservoir is right here. And the peritoneum, we gently pulled it out of the uh, the the field um, without getting into it. But at the time, my fellow, we had a switch in our fellow, and I had a urogynecology fellow um, on my service, and I was like, you know what? How about if you use a Forces retracted that you guys use for vaginal delivery. So I'll make the small incision in the bladder, and you guys get one of these small forceps delivery uh, instruments. And I don't know how to use it, but how about if you use it and help me kind of wiggle this or deliver this um, this stone? And it worked. So we we didn't get into the the peritoneum or to the sphincter to the capsule of the sphincter. So. We actually, it was, it was so large, you couldn't put the, the grasper parts together yet to keep it open. But you sort of delivered it like a head of a baby. I think next time I'll put a lot more loop. Anyways. So, yeah, stones in these patients are not usually small. But here are other things to consider. You can manage these stones, again, in the open fashion. Keep in mind you want to avoid injury to the channel if they have a channel. Again, you have to know where the channel is going. A lot of times, if it's a metrophenol, it's right in the middle. Um, so make, think about where you're going to make your cystotomy. You want it to be more in the native bladder, not in the offensive part, but also avoid the, the mesentery and also the channel. Um, and then consider pla placing a SP tube. If you think that this bladder is not going to drain or it's going to get clogged afterwards, consider placing a temporary SP tube, at least at the time of the healing. You can manage it endoscopically. Uh, we've done cases where we've done above and below, and we've had to get laparoscopic intravesical access to place a cord like a PCNL, uh, but, but using laparoscopy to make sure that we do it under direct vision so we don't get the bowel, and then go from above and below and manage the stones that way. So percutaneous intravesical. Metabolic uh, consequences, hyperchloramic metabolic acidosis is a big deal. Um, usually this occurs in patients with had ileal um, augmentation or, or, or if they've had like a right colon augmentation, usually happens about a decade after their augments and can lead into to osteoporosis. So keep that in mind if you want to manage it yourself, if you want to have your uh, endocrine or your, your neurologist manage it, but this is something to keep in mind and when you get a BMP and things don't make sense, be alert to look into it further. Vitamin B12 deficiency is in the guidelines, SBA guidelines, that you should check vitamin B12 uh, deficiency two years after reconstructive surgery. Um, I do that as well. I get a baseline and then I start checking it um, about three to five years post-surgery because we usually have that much reserve uh, in our liver. Um, uh, but it's something to consider for anyone who had ileal reconstruction, ileal conduit, ileal neobladder, ileal Lucifer reservoirs or anything like that, just keep in mind years down the road that you may want to check the vitamin B12. Um, so moving on uh, to bladder lesions, um, this is a 31-year-old female who uh, had lumbar spina bifida, had stones, multiple stones removed different ways, and then had a history of auto-augmentation, rectus fascia sling, and metropinal. Came in with some vague symptoms of lower abdominal pain, said 
foul smelling urine, cloudy urine, shouldn't smoke, the young lady. So obviously you keep treating the infections and it doesn't go away, be alert that there's something else going on. And that's when you want to do your upper tract and lower tract evaluation in more detail, get a CT scan and do a cystoscopy. And when you get a CT scan, you see this hydroureter, which is um, new for, for this lady and then all this fill and defect. Um, and you, you realize there's something else going on. And that patient did have a, a, a bladder malignancy, young patient. So let's talk about malignancy and um, neurogenic bladder and spina bifida. So the thought was that augmentation was the risk factor for um, uh, malignancy in these patients. There's more and more data that it's not necessarily the augmentation. Yes, augmentation is an added risk, but it's the inherent neurogenic bladder that puts them at risk. Just their dysfunctional bladder that's not a normal bladder, that it's an independent uh, risk factor for bladder cancer. And um, these patients usually present at a much younger age, age 41, in comparison to the general population where they present at 78. When they present, <clears throat> they are usually very advanced locally. They're already known positive and they're already metastatic. So, very advanced at a much younger age. And when you look at the histology, uh, majority of them are ureterial cell uh, malignancies. However, they do have more um, uh, severe uh, differentiation, like squamous differentiations. Um, and then uh, again, a good majority of them compared to the, the general population who have squamous cell and adenocarcinoma. This is patients without an augment, but just having neurogenic bladder um, as, um, as their primary diagnosis. Now, when they do have an augmentation cystoplasty, then they have an added um, risk factor for getting um, malignancy. And usually it's at the, so if this is the augment line, to the suture line here, and as the monic line, this is the augmented portion with the mesentery, this is the native bladder. You can see all these little areas of um, histologically, you can see it too, native bladder, augmented bladder. This is where you would get the malignancy if you're gonna have tumors. Um, and they, they do appear kind of later in, in, in after augment. So usually starting around after 10 years uh, from augment as an average uh, between around 19 years after augment. So the problem is most of these patients when they're diagnosed with malignancy, again, they're already pretty advanced and there's already metastasis. So there's been uh, protocols that have been tested to do surveillance cystoscopy annually in this patient. It's really not feasible and not high yield. Still, patients that were diagnosed were advanced, but we don't do routine surveillance cystoscopy annually for these patients. But we do do cystoscopy and evaluation if patient has a change in their urinary uh, tract status, they have more leaking, they have hydro new hydronephrosis, they have gross hematuria, recurring UTIs we can figure out, uh, pelvic pain, something else, then we do have to do a cystoscopy. <clears throat> so bladder rupture, this is not as obvious as you think in um, spina bifida patients or neurogenic bladder patients. They, it's a much bigger deal in spina bifida patients because, or compared to your other neurogenic bladder patients because they have a shunt also that can get infected. This is actually one of my patients uh, with, a, uh, with a, this is, he has a bladder neck a balloon, um, a U.S., and this is his balloon and a cup, which is further down. And um, I did an augment, ileal augment for him. He catheterized from below, and I also did a mace for him, and he loved it. He loved the mace. He 
loved the augment for years. He did great. He came back to the ER and said it's been two days, and he was sick. He looked septic. It's been two days that he's been using his mace. He's been putting a whole liter. Nothing is coming out of his mace. And at the time, I'm, I'm worried about perforation of the maze, colon rupture, that's what all I'm thinking. And I'm getting a CT scan, there's free fluid here. I put the Foley in him myself, there's really no blood in the urine. I get 200 cc's out, irrigate's okay. So we take him to the operating room for ex-lapidural surgery and um, run the bowel many times. Colon looks perfect, mace looks perfect. Um, we, we dig more and more, and then I find a tiny little sealed off pocket behind the bladder is hard to access it from behind the bladder where we actually had to open the bladder anterior and make a cystotomy and fix it through the bladder. But keep in mind, they don't present like you would think a bladder rupture would present. So um, uh, we have a lot of data from Dr. Kiesman, um, and uh, about the, the prevalence of it. It looks like it is more common in patients who have either substance abuse or they're not compliant with their catheterization or uh, basically they have some disability that they cannot stick with the intermittent catheterization on a regular basis or they're alcohol related. So um, usually they do need to be managed surgically. Very, very few patients in the literature have reported on their control setting that they've managed it with drainage, but they do have to be managed surgically most of the time. <clears throat> so moving away from the augments, we're gonna talk a little bit about the sexual function and the fertility function and dysfunction. Um, so uh, first we'll talk about the female uh, patients, uh, individuals. Um, so pregnancy in these patients is feasible and it's, uh, it, there are many spina bifida patients who have children and have had successful pregnancies. Many have had troubles during pregnancies. It is a multidisciplinary team uh, management. They do need to have MFM, maternal fetal medicine, OB, Doctors, they need to have a urologist, a reconstructive urologist on board. Renal function needs to be very uh, managed and uh, monitored clearly and closely. Um, I do get based on ultrasound on these patients because they will have a hydronephrosis toward the end of their pregnancy. So we do have a baseline. And we do need a baseline renal assessment. Uh, <clears throat> they have issues with infection versus colonization. They have issues with when to give uh, prophylactic antibiotic, when not to give it. Have trouble with emptying their spontaneous voiders, that could be challenging. If they're catheterizing, again, reaching the native urethra will be challenging. They have channels, the channel can get thin towards the end of the pregnancy. There's a lot of issues that they do need close follow up and things for us to think about. If they have augment, we have to think about the electrolyte balance now with the fluid changes and the recurrent UTIs and the stones and the irrigation. So, they're uh, uh, management. So those are the things you want to discuss and think about when you see pregnancy in these um, patients. Now, how about delivery? This is also another area that's discussed. So both pregnancy and delivery are discussed in the Spina Bifida Association guidelines. Um, at the delivery, again, you have to think about it. Yes, vaginal delivery is feasible and it is recommended, especially um, if you're worried about the augment. But think, think about it. These patients have, don't have a healthy, normal pelvis most of the time. If you think that they're not going to be able to generate a good contraction and valsalva, as you see during your dynamics, a lot of times they can't generate a good valsalva, then vaginal delivery may not be a good option because they, they're going to have, um, they, they, it's not going to go well and it's going to lead into a very 
urgent or emergent C-section, which is even more problematic. So personally, I like scheduled induced vaginal delivery where I'm available, that everybody else is available. We'll give the patient try and attempt a few hours. If it doesn't go, then we'll go on a planned C-section. Um, and then we all need to have a discussion about the incision of where we're going to incise and how we're going to incise, especially if they've had augmentation, they have channel. This, all of this needs to be discussed before the C-section. Um, and then we need to be involved from the beginning. So this is a 29-year-old lady uh, with myeloma meningocele and history of augmentation cystoplasty and wanted to have her tubes ligated. Um, and then you can see that uh, at the end where uh, the urologists were looking and they saw this tiny little opening in the augmented part of the, the, the bladder. So again, as urologists, and this looks like a trauma setting, obviously we're responsible from, I say from the top of the kidney all the way to the end of the meatus. So although they have their forceps in the hole, you're responsible to look at the entire bladder and make sure that there's no other injury to the bladder, no other injury to the mesentery, no injury to the ureters. They did the tubal ligation, so you need to do that as well. And then at the end, test everything, make sure there's a no leak and everything's watertight again because this they may have a shunt. Um, and this is intraperitoneal rupture now. So uh, keep in mind that a lot of these would go better if there's a discussion and plan before the C-section or before attempt of vaginal delivery. Okay. So we discussed about, we discussed pregnancy delivery, and then what comes after that is prolapse. This is something that was not under, on my radar personally when I started practice um, eight years ago. But if you think about it, myelomeningocele patients have all the risk factors for prolapse. They have obesity, they, they get pregnant, they, they, um, they, they, their musculature is not well developed, innervated well. <clears throat> they have a lot of pelvic stresses. They transfer themselves. They have horrible constipation. They have bowel void. So they have all the risk factors to get prolapse. Um, but then there's not much in the literature. There's uh, this is I, I looked at it like a month ago. There's only 30, and majority of them were like rectal prolapse, not necessarily pelvic organ prolapse. I think um, there are only 44 studies that I could find that would look at that was looking at pelvic organ prolapse. Uh, we were one of the very first people who looked at our cohort with retrospectively. And published it and this is why because patients now when they have prolapse they go see their urogynecologist which is great but then they again there, there needs to be some thought process that if they've had augmentation or if they've had bladder neck cuffs maybe pessary is not an ideal option for these patients so things that we need to think about or they come to you like this um, and they say they have a hard time catheterizing and you, you think about oh my god so why and you look down below, this is why they can't catheterize anymore because they have a complete presidentia. And you are concerned about doing sacrococcyphy because of the variation of the anatomy of the sacrum itself, shunts, getting intraperitoneal approach. So the management of these pelvic organ prolapse is extremely challenging these patients. But more importantly, what I want you to know and remember is to be aware that it, it, it is common it presents in patients at a much younger age. In our cohort, the median presentation age was 24, and uh, most of them had stage above two anterior and bulk prolapse. So keep in mind that they, with, even in the ones without any history of pregnancy and delivery. So keep in mind that the reason is probably their musculature is not well developed. So I personally, <clears throat> any time I get a patient for urodynamic spina bifida, I examine them for prolapse. 
um, at the time of the urodynamics. So every two years they get screening for prolapse because a lot of times they can't even tell you that they have prolapse because they can't feel it. They can't. They don't have the sensation of the pressure. So we do need to be proactive and look for it. Now, what we can do about it is a different story. We may not have an answer, but I think we need to look for it and uh, think about it. <clears throat> Sexuality and fertility. So with majority of spinal bifid individuals now being adults, this is a big deal. When they transition to adult clinics, this is part of my algorithm. I do break the ice. I do discuss with them that as their urologist um, here, to talk to them about their 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 sexuality and fertility questions as much as and address them as much as I can and refer them to a, a infertility specialist um, if there needs to be. So when you look at the literature, all the data is very pretty kind of older, and majority of them don't use validated questionnaires or their focus is in only one gender versus having both. So we looked at our cohort, and it's part of our. Uh, income kind of questionnaires that they answer. They, they, they answer the SHIM questionnaires and the brief index sexual function for women questionnaires. And um, uh, uh, and then this is our result out of the 160 something patients that we, we asked them to, to respond. First of all, the majority of them couldn't answer these questions despite the fact that we had our coordinators sit next to them and help them answer these questions. But when you look at the answer, majority of them have not received any fertility or infertility counseling. Uh, majority of them have not heard of assisted reproductive therapies and the things that they can have to help them. Um, but when you look at it about them being sexually active, uh, many of them have had sex history of sexual activity, uh, almost one third of them. 20% of them are, are, are currently sexually active. And many of them do want to become sexually active. And, Many of them do want to learn more. So I think we need to keep that in mind that, um, that this is something that we need to acknowledge the sexual health as an important part of the adult care. And maybe we need to think about as the leaders in the field, we need to think about better questionnaires or better ways to, to get data and study these patients. And, um, uh, and go from there. And it needs to be part of the care pathway for the adult spinal bifida patients. So switching gears to the men's health, sexuality, and, and fertility uh, part of adult spinal bifida. Again, the Spinal Bifida Association guidelines where Dr. Wiener is um, uh, one of the authors for this section has excellent few pages and uh, it's, it's very easy to read and use in clinical practice. So. Um, the recommendation is for adults to do annual scoreable exam, teach them how to do monthly testicular health exams, and, um, um, and then as, as uh, their urologists, we need to ask them about their genital sensation, their erectile and ejaculative function, when desired or if they desire, if they want to know about it. Usually, you do have to have that difficult conversation if they want to have the parent step out of the room. Um, uh, and then ask them privately if they want to know or if they want to learn more or if they need information. And when appropriate, refer them to a sexual dysfunction specialist. For when, for men, obviously we have uh, medications, the phosphodiesterase inhibitors as our first line therapy. You can use any other therapies that you use for your idiopathic uh, ED as well um, for these patient population. 
And for fertility, you want to educate them when, uh, when it's applicable, when they're desired about um, uh, fertility and uh, preventing pregnancies if they desire, um, and genetic counseling and the heritability of spina bifida. Uh, most spina bifida patients would produce sperm and semen, and um, if that sperm reaches an egg, it can uh, lead into pregnancy. Um, Recurrence of neural tube de defects is more common in these patients, um, and um, there is a recommendation for folic acid supplementation to reduce this risk, especially for women. So these things need to be discussed with them because I'm sure it's on their mind and they need to hear it from us. Specifically for men with ED and ejaculation dysfunction, again, as Dr. Wiener mentioned, most of these patients would have like this open bladder neck. So it's harder for, for them to have anti-grade ejaculation. However, we can use electroejaculation or retrieve sperms from uh, surgically from the testis and use it for IVF uh, or other forms of assisted, assisted reproductive therapy. So this needs to be discussed with them that there is an option and we can, we can move forward. Um, uh, for um, preventing uh, pregnancies, again, they need to know that if they're desired, if they're, they're having desire to become sexually active, um, they can use condoms, but again, they need to be uh, mindful about using non-latex uh, condoms because of their, most of our spina bifida patients being having latex allergy or latex sensitivity. Prostate cancer, yes, in adult spina bifida men, it has been diagnosed. Um, there's limited data as far as recommendation for screening, diagnosis, and treatment efforts, things to keep in mind. We follow the regular AUA guidelines um, to, to screen these patients. However, the things to keep in mind is that these patients usually have chronic bacteria and it's difficult to interpret their PSA. So um, if, if the decision is made to, um, to move forward with the biopsy, <clears throat> the recommendation is to use MRI-guided and uh, pre-treat with antibiotics. And then we need to have a, a, a combined decision-making as far as the treatment for cancer, for prostate cancer in these patients and really weigh the risk and benefits um, uh, and also evaluate their bladder neck with cystoscopy um, if we're considering prostatectomy or, or radiation and consider baseline neurodynamics before decisions on how to treat their prostate cancer. So something else I want to mention is uh, the, the, the in utero um, repair of myeloma and And the thought process is that if you repair the defect, there will be less exposure of the uh, spinal uh, nerves uh, to the amniotic fluid. There will be better formation of the nerves, and um, that could lead into uh, better, uh, higher functioning uh, musculature and also uh, a bowel and bladder function. So this is an open kind of repair. There were some successful reports in the late 90s, and then um, the MOMS trial started in 2003, where there was a randomized controlled trial, um, and um, it stopped in 2010. However, the patients are being followed longer, and we have data uh, that I'll go through. So the early results show that there was significant improvement in neuromuscular muscular, muscular outcome. They had a really better um, uh, outcome um, as far as reversing the hindbrain herniation as far as the shunt issues. Um, urological at 30 months, the, the outcomes were really non, uh, they were non um, inconclusive. Um, 
and as far as the urodynamics outcome, as far as CIC outcome. And um, therefore, the decision was made to continue this trial to month two and month three to look at uh, school age and adolescent age um, outcomes. The month two data came out, this is six, uh, age six, where they looked at need for CIC and physicostomy and augments using your, your dynamics and ultrasounds. And uh, out of these 156 patients that were followed long term, um, they showed that there was a, a smaller need for catheterization in patients who had fetal uh, repair. Um, uh, and there were 24% of these patients who were voiding spontaneously versus 4% in patients who were uh, voiding spontaneously in the cohort that did get a postnatal repair. Um, there was no urodynamical differences or renal bladder differences in this patient. There are some uh, uh, concerns about this data, and I think some of the things to remember is that uh, there were some reports that patients, um, parents were more hesitant to start catheterization in these patients um, because they had such an improvement in their neurovascular you know, uh, function that they thought it would be a failure if they started like catheterization. So there were more hesitancy about starting catheterization. So maybe that's not a, a, the perfect thing to you to say the fetal was better as far as the urological um, fetal uh, repair. But I think something that is clear for me out of these data is that even with the fetal MMC repair, they manage the urological care for spina bifida in the adult world, it's going to persist. These patients, majority of them will have neurogenic bladder and we will have to be involved with their care and we need to be aware of how to take care of them even 20, 30 years ago, 20, 30 years from now when um, fetal repair becomes um, uh, mainstay. So that's all I have. Um, I think we're going to switch to questions and please um, take the survey and tell us what you thought about our, our talk and the lecture. Rose, that was great. Uh, um, you covered a lot of the relevant issues in um, adult uh, or care of adults with spina bifida as well as uh, some of the things I didn't cover in my talk such as um, uh, fetal closure and, and those sorts of things. So I, I hope the audience got a real complete view of uh, urologic management of uh, patients of all ages from fetus to adults uh, um, from our two talks. Um, we have several questions, um, most of which are pretty uh, insightful and, and, and sounds like people want some uh, specific data. Uh, the first question is about genomycin irrigations. Um, which uh, there's a lot of different uh, voodoo to do that. Uh, first, I'll take the opportunity just to, to ask you, so you actually make it up in your clinic and the patients pick it up. Right. Um, and when they come back, do they like to check in at the front desk and get it handed to them? So the reason why we decided to make it here and have them pick it up, it, it, it's difficult to give them the instruction to do it at home. And, um, I think Michigan does that as well, and Cameron's group for, for spinal cord injury patient, and we thought it's a brilliant idea. Um, they don't have to even see me if they're on a six, so I don't leave them on there for a long time. Again, the protocol is made up um, a lot of it. Um, so they, I usually keep them on for three to six months, and then we stop it. 
and see how they do. They're not on it forever. And at the beginning, the first two weeks, they use it every day. And then they use it two or three times a week, then once a week, which again, I think is the more act of the irrigation itself, not necessarily the gentle mice in them. Maybe that's helpful, but I think it's nice to have a little bit of medicine for the placebo effect, maybe. But there's been studies that have looked at the gentamicin toxicity in patients who do bladder irrigation, and there's no risk of increasing gentamicin absorption. So I think it's safe, but yes, they would come in once a month and pick up their bottle and go put it in their fridge. Yeah, and for, uh, as you can see, I have a lot of gray hair. So back in the old days, you could write a prescription and the pharmacist could do it. But because of contamination, uh, I think it was people getting um, meningitis for some spinal injections uh, because the pharmacies weren't properly mixing things. Uh, it Basically, pharmacies have to have a hood now to do any kind of uh, compounding. And so it, it, they can't just get some gent and stick it in a, a liter bottle of saline. Um, so the question was, why do you uh, recommend it in the morning, and is there a difference between doing it in the morning versus evening? I know just that um, they can probably do it in the evening as well, usually right after they irrigate the bladder, whenever it's their irrigation. I usually tell them, drain your bladder, irrigate your bladder, uh, leave the, put the gentamicin in, use usually 60 cc's. Um, if you're worried about their, their capacity and adding another 60 at night, so they may need to cast a little bit sooner. Maybe you want to do it during the daytime, but there's really no, yeah. no problem. For oral medications, I like it at night because they may stay in the bladder longer. Um, uh, about irrigations, uh, uh, you had talked about Doug Hoosman's uh, protocol of irrigating with 240 mLs. That's uh, for the 60 cc syringes. But what volume would you recommend for children? Um, I guess since I'm the pediatric person, I'll take that one. Um, we always start people on 60 in and out um, from the beginning. Maybe the first month after surgery, I'll only have them do 30 twice a day because I'm worried about causing a leak. Uh, but we typically stick, uh, stick with 60 because um, it's one syringe. Um, there's a, a paper from Indiana showing that uh, the incidence of stones goes down uh, as you go from one, two, three syringes, uh, and then this one's uh, 240 is four syringes uh, of 60 ml. Um, so I increase the, the amount on my patients that have more trouble with UTI, more trouble with mucus plugging, or most importantly, stones. I um, think you can use um, your dynamics to guide you because that can give you a good idea about the capacity. And if they have a, a lot of the augmented patients of mine who have had colon augment, they have like 700, 800 cc capacity. And even 200, you can't get all that pockets. It's just the drain as well. So use, use this, your dynamics to guide you about the capacity and allow some fluid to fill the bladder so you can get all that mucus kind of stirred up from the base and be able to aspirate it. And just so you understand, we're not talking about putting a syringe in and sucking out, putting one in, sucking out. It's put multiple ones in to stir the mucus up so and it gets it off the wall and then you can suck it up better. Um, and also, uh, as, as Dr. Kavari said, um, uh, colon tends to be more of a problem. It's less popular now than it was uh, 20 years ago. Uh, next question, what do you do for patients with an appendicovesicostomy who no longer want continent diversion? Like they've had an appendicoviscosity and they want to undivert and have an ileal conduit. We would discuss them with them. Why would they not want to get rid of their appendicoviscosity? Is it a problem with catheterization? 
Um, is there a problem with, uh, you know, catheters, tubing, channels? What is the issue? Or the incont is it an incontinence issue? Because honestly, if they have a good channel that's working and they want to get an ileal conduit instead, uh, I think we need to know the reasons. And if it makes sense, then sure, we can do a cystectomy, a simple cystectomy, like a supratrigonal, like maybe ileal conduit. But um, if they have a functioning good stoma, I think we, we need to figure out what is the burden on using it and address those burdens. <clears throat> yeah, you, can leave, you certainly can leave it attached to the skin and usually, unless it's really big, it'll, it'll stenose off. Uh, a question for you, uh, do you typically do a cystectomy in anybody that uh, you're diverting? Yes, yes. So I used to, I would, I, when I started, um, I wasn't, and I thought, um, especially the ones more in the stroke patients where they've already had eroded urethra with a large bladder neck, and I thought, okay, everything is gonna drain, I can probably just do a quick ileal conduit, um, but then I realized that I've had uh, a couple of patients that they had thiocystitis, that neurogenic bladder patients are usually more immobile, so the idea of things draining and they're more uh, obese, it's not, what I thought, it doesn't drain. So honestly, doing it quick, simple, just use the ligature, simple cystectomy, burn the, the mucosa at the end, it adds 15 to 20 minutes and it's worth it. So and I, I think that, that adult urologists do that a lot more than pediatric urologists. We're not typically uh, extirpative surgeons and uh, if you're old like me, you, uh, you train before the ligature. Um, but that's a good idea. Uh, Next question, how do you treat asymptomatic bacteria during pregnancy for spina bifida patients? I think that's also, again, a discussion you want to have with the OB uh, physician um, and the patient. If this is, uh, they've had multiple pregnancies and they haven't had any issues with asymptomatic bacteria, I'll wait until the third trimester to start them on a prophylactic antibiotic because that's the risk is uh, premature delivery or preterm delivery. Um, uh, but I wouldn't started earlier on. However, if they've had miscarriages before and they're worried about that, then I'm okay with starting it throughout pregnancy. And obviously you have to look at the, uh, the indications. Uh, um, penicillins are the, are the safest, but uh, you want to avoid. Usually your Keflex is what they would, or yeah. important, that's what they would do. Uh, in that vein, what is your preferred incision for delivery in patients with an augmentation and diversions? In general, I like vertical X-lab incision for anything. I just feel like that you can extend it as much as you need to. You can evaluate the bowel if you need to. So um, even if they come to us with a small little fan and still that they had, I think I would still consider a vertical incision after you put a catheter in the stoma, after you make sure where your stoma is, after you look at their prior imaging to kind of see where the path of the VP shunt is. Again, you don't want to get a big knife and cut right in the middle of the VP shunt either. Um, so um, personally, I like a vertical midline incision. And it's going to be pretty rare for a patient who's had major bladder reconstruction to have anything but a vertical incision. A, a few may have fan and steels, but not many. Yeah, we have a few pediatric urologists who do a beautiful like augmentation or channel with a small little fan and steel, and it looks just perfect. And unfortunately, I have to sometimes mess it up and give them a of the teeth. Next question, how do you counsel patients on their increased risk of future bladder cancer when you're considering augmentation in a pediatric patient? 
I guess I'll take that one since I'm counseling the pediatric families. Um, it's actually easier now than it used to be, because as Dr. Kabari talked about, 15 years ago, it was thought that uh, the risk of augment, the risk of malignancy was increased by augmentation and the um, risk was between five and 10%. Um, excuse me, my resident calling you. He must not be watching. Uh, so, uh, um, uh, but there, we, there's more and more data that just these patients have an increased risk of, of cancer. Uh, one of my patients in her 40s, it was right back there at the back of the bladder where the catheter has been hitting for the last 40 years. I think there's just chronic inflammation there. And so, uh, so now we say there's an increased risk of cancer with or without augmentation. We don't really think that augmentation has increased the risk that much. All of these patients have an increased risk. Um, and so it's, it's actually an easier conversation now than it was 15 years ago. Um, I've also found out that the rupture I showed you, it was exactly where that point of where the catheter would fit at the base of that posterior incision where the tongue of the augment would come, that little triangle, like it V-shaped. So I think that's a very weak point for irritation, rupture, malignancy. Mm -hmm. um, two more questions. Um, did you notice that children who had an augmentation with the ileocecal valve have fecal reflux into the ileum? In the pediatric patients or adult patients? But said children, uh, I'll take it from the children's standpoint and let you take the adult. Okay. Uh, in terms of children, we try to preserve the ileocecal valve um, uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, um, we're often doing valve stuff using the, the MACE procedure, so they're keeping the cecum intact and uh, with the appendix. Uh, secondly, uh, ileum, I think, is the best uh, augmentation segment. Um, the only time I do use the right colon is if I'm doing a diversion in somebody who is uh, a continent diversion and uh, like an extra V patient who we're not using the bladder. Uh, so um, we, I try to leave as much large intestine as possible to uh, as a reservoir for stool. Um, there are some places that, that take out some of the colon just for quicker mace flushes, but there's no proof of that. Um, so, um, so I try to leave the ileocecal valve intact as well as 25 centimeters of terminal ileum. So I've, I've been trained a little bit differently. Um, for adults, um, we do use the large colon and the ileum, the terminal ileum for the channel. I'll tell you why. And Everybody who's going to go get that kind of augmentation will have a colonoscopy beforehand um, to clean their to clear their bowel. And usually, I ask the GI doctor to give me a picture of the ileocecal valve. And the, traditionally, the thought is that this is a competent valve. Now, we use a lot of these valves; they're never competent. You can literally put your whole index finger in it, and there's no competent valve that I've seen so far ever. So you have to imbricate and modify all of them. Um, so I'm not worried about, I'm sure whatever was happening before, it's still going to happen after my augmentation. So that's not a worry. I think the concern is the diarrhea that everybody raises after using the ileocecal valve. And we looked at our series, um, and that was published. And then um, I'll tell you guys about another one, which, is one of, which was one of the Enbridge studies just got accepted to the NAU journal. And it's in adults comparing uh, modified Indiana versus ileal 
augment and channel, channel in adults multi-center contemporary data. Um, the uh, diarrhea is really not an issue. Again, most of these patients already have constipation and this additional fluid actually helps them. Now, if I want to do a maze, if a patient needs a maze, obviously this is not the route I want to go. But the reason why we use it, um, if we don't want to do a maze, is because usually the appendix in adults is short, because again, by the time they get to us, they have such a trunk of obesity and such big bellies. I, I mean, even doing a monty or spinal monty, I'm gonna end up with like, such a skinny little long tube that I'm just constantly worried about it not working long-term. So ileum, terminal ileum tapering it, it works. It, the risk of restriction is really low. The risk of it ballooning overuse is really low. Um, it's an easy, you know, with a long mesentery, you can put it wherever you want to put it. So it's easier in adult to choose a side and work with it a little bit more. And I think that's why we, we've chosen to go this route. We've had less channel issues with using terminal ileum versus doing an ileal augment and then using a monte or, or, um, or appendical viscosity or anything like that. Um, but, uh, but if you want, guys want to look at the adult uh, contemporary comparison between these two, again, it's retrospective, but it's multi-center. Um, I would um, uh, refer you to that study, um, Jeremy Myers, and we're one of the centers um, and, uh, from Michigan um, and in Indiana, but it's multiple areas that are part of that cohort. That's great. Um, yeah, and I've got a few patients who had Coke pouches done in the, in the 80s. Um, and they have diarrhea, and if you, and the and the big reason is is that they've lost their terminal ileum, so they don't absorb bile salts. Uh, so if you put them on cholestyramine to bind the bile salts, that really helps the diarrhea a lot. Um, uh, I will tell you a little inside secret since I was on the exam committee, um, is that there are typically going to be three or four questions on every exam you take, whether it's in service or your qualifying exam on neurogenic bladder for adults and pediatrics and on urinary diversion. So there's so much covered in this talk that will be on every exam. Um, it's high yield. Um, my last, uh, last question is, are there any data looking at mental health conditions in adults with spina bifida? Any difference in rates of psychiatric conditions, impact of mental health conditions on compliance with bladder and bowel management, et cetera? Um, that's complicated. I'm not aware of any data of any psychiatric conditions besides anxiety. And children with spina bifida are pretty much like any, any uh, children with any chronic medical problem. They just have increased levels of anxiety because they've had so much done to them over the years. Um, but in terms of uh, other issues, not really. Um, it's part of the reason they're delightful patients to work with. There's really, I don't know the data, but most of them are pretty happy people. Uh, I don't see a lot of depression. Most of the depression is probably more in the lower spina bifida patients uh, who are ambulatory and look like able-bodied patients but have terrible bladders and bowels. Those are the most challenging patients because everybody looks at them and expects them to be normal uh, and they're in a diaper or pull-up and, and a patient uh, who's in a wheelchair, that's sort of okay. But um, so I, I see more issues with the ambulatory patients, but, but I don't know of any published data on that. I don't know any of published data in adults, but honestly, I haven't looked at it in detail either. But I can tell you that there, I agree, they're, they're much happier patients. And when you improve 
one thing in their care, they're so grateful about it and it makes such a big difference compared to the other neurogenic patient population, which um, like MS patients, monocord injury patients that I take care of, Parkinson's, they have significantly more depression. Um, uh, they, they, grew up, they, yeah, they grew up this way and, and so their, their expectations are different. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.